Hello everyone, and welcome to the first Q&A Unorthodoxy podcast. It really feels like I should have done one of these a long time ago, but this is the first one. Before I get going on the Enneagram of Mimetic Desire, I wanted to take a few podcasts to look at some questions that I've gotten along the way and to offer the best attempt at an answer to those questions that I can give. And I realize that means that some of my answers may be horrifically truncated in the end, but I still hope that they will be at least somewhat on the right track. If you do support me on Patreon, I will, come philosophical hell or existential high water, make it a priority to answer your questions. And the next few episodes are proof of that, I I hope. (laughs) As you will see, some of the episodes uh, will have me taking a full episode to answer one question. I've seen that some of the questions I've been given require uh, a lot more attention. Um, But in this episode, I get to, to look at three questions. So, here we go. Question one, which has a few aspects to it, but it deals with the same issue. Is the humor of the Bible lost with time? Or are the humorous things that the different writers of the Bible wrote lost to us because the nature of humor cannot be pinned down? Why is it so hard to find anything funny in the Bible? Such a nice question. Uh, the, the questioner who sent this to me does raise some additional points, which I'm not mentioning directly, but I think we have enough here to go on uh, to provide something of a, a decent answer. First, a few thoughts on the question itself. What I like here to begin with is that the question is framed beginning with the issue of time. Is the humor of the Bible lost with time? The short answer is yes, but there's also quite a lot more going on here. Also, the assumption underlying the question, which is spot on, is that there is, in fact, humor in the Bible. Yes, there really is, although the questioner is is absolutely right to point out that it's not so easy to find. So right at the outset, I can recommend a book, Illuminating Humor of the Bible by Stephen Walker. It is a great read and really interesting since it actually points out examples of humor in the Bible, and there are many examples. But with that in mind, we can get to an answer that is shorter than a book. I actually want to start by looking at the issue of whether humor is mysterious, uh, the idea that the nature of humor is difficult to pin down. And, well, it turns out that it really isn't all that difficult to understand how humor works, even if it is still difficult to tell a good joke. It helps to start with the issue of how meaning is created, because, after all, humor is a kind of meaning-making. Meaning happens always in the interplay of content with context. We understand the meaning of brushing our teeth, for instance, because of the context of things like gingivitis and the importance of general hygiene for keeping us healthy and so on. We understand the meaning of reaching the summit of Mount Everest because of various contextual factors like the huge trouble it takes to get there, the effort and planning and training and financial expense and insanity, you know, that stuff. And this is why we marvel at someone who reaches the top of Everest and we make movies about them. But we don't do this for someone who manages only to climb a very short flight of stairs. Both things involve a climb, but the context is what makes the one thing more meaningful and thus more significant than another thing. Humor, of course, like all meaningful things, is highly context-dependent. And over the ages, different kinds of humor have been regarded as culturally preferable. So 
For instance, humor was regarded in the pre-modern world primarily through the lens of derision. You can get a sense of this in Mary Beard's discussion of a, a, a Roman, ancient Roman joke book in, in her book Laughter in Ancient Rome. Plato's thinking around humor is, is actually rather cutting, well, towards humor, since he doesn't see it as elevating people to the highest good, but rather as being something like the negation of the goodness of being. Humor was mainly regarded in those ancient times as something created at someone's expense. We still have this kind of humor, but in the ancient world, laughter was predominantly understood as mocking laughter. Even God in the Old Testament um, laughs in this way, this der derisive sort of way. Freud believed humor functions as a kind of catharsis or release of repressed tension, and this fits too as a theory of humor, but I think the best theory of humor is something known as benign violation theory, which was arrived at by Thomas Veitch. The idea is that there is some kind of violation of expectation or norm, but for us to laugh, we need to perceive the violation as being benign or harmless. In other words, the disjunction between context and content, which is what humor requires to work, is managed according to a very subtle tension. Uh, and if this tension is not maintained or perceived, there's just a very strong likelihood that we're not going to see the joke. If the tension in the given benign violation is messed up, the humor will vanish. If the joke is too benign, which means it, it will lean too much on simply meeting your expectations, well then there's not going to be any surprise and you won't laugh. This is why a retold joke gets less laughter. The violation is no longer evident because it's become a part of the very expectation that was originally interrupted. But at the same time, if the joke is too dark, if the violation is too strong, you won't laugh either because you'll be too appalled or shocked. The line between comedy and horror is actually alarmingly thin. But as I've hinted, uh, this points out to us that it is really, really difficult to get the tension right. It's difficult to balance the picture and the frame. With humor in the Bible, often we miss the humor because we don't know the original frame well enough. We, we're reading the Bible through an early 21st century Western frame rather than through a pre-modern Middle Eastern frame. If we wanted to see the humor, we'd first really need to have access to the original frame, and we would need to have a clear view of how the thing uttered in the text actually challenges or violates the, the benign frame. So, as the original question suggests, at least part of the problem is time. But it's also a number of other things to do with um, context, space, culture, history. This does not mean, thankfully, that we are beyond redeeming the humor in the Bible, but it does mean, sadly, that it might take a bit of imagination and study to be given the gift of easily perceiving that humor. You might find it surprising that this doesn't always mean that we need to be more sophisticated to see the humor in the Bible. Sometimes, the truth is more like the opposite. Often the trouble is that we are, in a way, too sophisticated, or at least by the biblical standards, we are too sophisticated. Our culture has shifted in, in that way. So a lot of the humor in the Bible is, is actually quite crude. It's very bodily, and it includes things like, apologies for the crudeness of this, dick measuring in 1 Kings 12, and something like an ode to a penis in Song of Songs. 
I kid you not, although it is sanitized very much in, in English, so we might miss it. Um, in that famous contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Baal fail to get their God to respond. That's part of the story. And Elijah in 1 Kings 18 thinks this is a perfect opportunity to mock said prophets. And so at one point he even says, maybe Baal is too busy taking a dump to respond to you. And so obviously sometimes we miss the humor because it's it's too crude and maybe we, we haven't been reading that um, closely enough. But sometimes... Uh, we miss the humor because it's too dark, as in the story of Acts when Paul is so boring, uh, he preaches so long that this guy falls asleep and then falls out of the window he was leaning against and, well, he dies. So that's basically death by a sermon, which is, I suppose, not all that far-fetched. As for the funniest book in the Bible, I think it is the book of Jonah. I mean, it's got things like, like animals repenting and so on. You can actually get a, a really wonderful translation that brings out uh, the, the comedy of the book of Jonah. It's called Jonah, a Comedy by Matt Michalatis. So, which, I, you know, I'd recommend that if you want to get a sense of the uh, humor in the Bible. So, yes, well, I, I hope that gives a, a decent enough answer and a, a few guidelines for, for how to, to maybe access some of the humor in the Bible. Now for question two. Uh, this is a, quite a layered question and it in fact is a series of questions and here it is. When it comes to what you've spoken about regarding the transforming self, does this transformation look different for each person? The experience of God seems highly individualized yet how do you manage to find community during or after transformation? I'm not liberal and I'm not confessional. I find myself not fitting into any category. Is my alienation just my ego protecting itself, which really shows that I haven't been transformed? Okay, as I said, this is layered. But I think it hits on a, a number of things that a lot of us will relate to. So this is much more existential than theological, or I guess philosophical, as the last question was. I'm going to tackle each issue as it comes up and then offer something of an analysis of what I think is at the core of this. First off, I would agree with the idea, at least in its basic form, that the experience of God is highly individual, or at least highly personal. David Bentley Hart does an astonishing job in his book, The Experience of God, to highlight what would be, say, some of the more universal aspects of that experience. But Still, what, what we make of the experience of God is going to be highly dependent on and in keeping with our own unique capacities and awarenesses. I think this is, albeit to a limited degree, something that the Enneagram highlights. And it's one of the reasons why I found the Enneagram such a useful tool. It points out our sort of individual predispositions and how those might need to be challenged in order to have a, a deeper and richer sense of both ourselves and of God beyond us. But the next part of the, the question points out a very real struggle to find community after you've gone through a period of radical change. I think that the metaphor here would be something like as you, you outgrow your clothes. And so, you know, trying to fit back into the clothes that you've outgrown is, is often very awkward and painful. So if you started off as a fundamentalist of sorts and then have gone through some kind of deconstruction and have finally ended up in a space of genuine openness to otherness, 
it's really hard to find community. And I, I wish that it wasn't this way, but it, it seems like this is the case. And a lot of people really struggle with this. So part of the reason for this, I think, is probably obvious to you. We might start from the same point of departure, but precisely where we land up is going to depend very much on who we are. And if we land up in different places, radically removed from others, the result is definitely going to be an abiding and disturbing sense of alienation and even loneliness. Some of this, I think, can be explained by the Graves model or the so-called spiral dynamics. There are different takes on it, but it's basically the same idea. And that deserves a whole podcast or three on its own. But one thing that that model gets at is that shifts in types of consciousness, which definitely do happen, tend to result in a break with what was previously a system of belonging. So, uh, in fact, sometimes that's very necessary. So when you outgrow the clothes, there's a period during which you actually have to outright reject the clothes to continue my metaphor. But this doesn't mean saying ultimately once you keep on growing, it doesn't mean that you, you say those clothes are evil and no one should ever wear the clothes because the clothes are, you know, they served their function for a time. Um, but there is a, it's a painful thing to, to especially be in that space of being, let's say, radically individualized and separate from the original context of belonging. So, in short, Finding community during or after transformation is really tough. This may be a bit of a rough thing to say, but maybe you'll never find groups of people who will totally get where you're at. And I say this not to dishearten you at all, but to point out the real consequence and cost of becoming the best version of yourself that you can be. But I have learned a lot on, on this front, and, and so obviously I'm very much offering my highly subjective experience here what I have discovered is that it helps to simply find other individuals who share something of your spiritual journey. Uh, they may not get everything, but seeing recognition in the face of another, or even on, on just a few core ideas or, or experiences of being, is a really profound thing that should be cherished. In any case, community is something that is very abstract and detached, what we're really looking for is a, a recognition of who we are and a space in which we can really recognize others and what they're going through. Um, I think our deepest craving is really for the experience of being known and seen and understood. And from my point of view, I don't think that is something that is achieved when community is a very large abstraction. It needs to be much more intimate uh, and much more sort of generously personal. So I do think that this sense of belonging is more easily achievable with individual others than with groups of people. Uh, but I am an introvert, and so my own bias might come too much into play um, on this particular matter. One way to find connection is to risk vulnerability. Actually, I think vulnerability is at the center of this question, and I think it's at the center of the solution to this question understanding that when you don't have a sense of belonging, you feel vulnerable, but you don't feel vulnerable in, let's say, the right way. And, and what you are looking for is the right kind of vulnerability. 
being able to be vulnerable with people who really see you for who you really are. So you share what your experience is and then watch what happens in other people. Pay very close attention to their eyes, to, to their subtle expressions. There are moments of resonance that easily pass us by if we're not paying attention. And then it helps when we see that kind of flicker of re recognition to, to ask a question like, does this resonate with you and why? What's your experience been? I have a few friends, very few friends, that share my desire to deepen my own stance on the world. And I can help them, I hope in some way, to, to um, keep being true to the journey that they're on. But community is something that has tended to come and go for me. Sometimes this has been just part of a natural progression, and sometimes it's arrived rather painfully as the result of some kind of misunderstanding, because I, uh, often because I was teaching and saying things that others were not ready to hear. And I guess there's no real way around this. Um, but I would say that failure is not a reason to give up trying. Another thing definitely helps here. You can do very little about what others are up to and whether they create belonging for you, but you can do something about what kind of space you want to create. So, in other words, manifest the change in yourself that you want to see in others. The basic principle is one of reciprocity. If you want to understand human interactions, the principle of reciprocity, very well researched in psychology, it's at the root of the golden rule, is it's hugely profound. Um, the basic idea is that you hold out your hand and someone will, in all likelihood, hold theirs out too. But reciprocity is not, sadly, something we can guarantee. And making the first move is really tricky, especially if you are one of the more, say, withdrawn uh, types. Because, um, you know, while a radical extrovert will maybe find taking that first move really easy, it's the, the radical introvert is going to find that basically a form of, of holy terror. Even so, uh, it's a good idea to take the trouble to figure out your own gifts and the way that you can manifest your best self to the world. Become, in the way, the flame that draws the moths. Be the light unto the world. This may even mean trying to set up a community of sorts say, and it can be really small, getting friends together for something like a pig fest. That's actually one of the reasons why I did a podcast on that. Um, or maybe you just get a reading group together and grapple with things at, at some level that allows for some kind of spiritual insight without getting, as you know, as the question suggests, without getting too caught up in labels, especially labels about where you ought to be sitting, situating yourself in terms of religious community or political affiliation. This may be taxing at times and risky, but it certainly helps to basically create the kind of spaces that you need. Soon, you will really see that others need these spaces too, and you'll, you'll find oddballs who don't fit, just like you. Okay, then, well, that question actually finishes with this question. So this actually functions as a kind of very important sub-question. Is my alienation just my ego protecting itself, uh, which shows I haven't been transformed? Well, a sense of alienation is really just, a, I guess, a, an emotional experience, and so I don't think it is in itself a sign of a lack of transformation. Maybe it can be, I suppose, 
if that alienation stems from something like the scapegoating of others or looking down on others. But people who have grown and transformed tend, when mature, only to want to reach out and meet others where they are. And alienation can still be experienced even in that, often in a sense of being present to others who simply don't get that complex kaleidoscopic vision of the world that you contain within your mind. My tendency used to be, uh, again because of my introverted predisposition, um, to just shut up about my thoughts because others seemed confused by them or perplexed by me. But I found that learning to say out loud what I'm thinking, especially if the intention is to uh, be good for other people, has been hugely redemptive for me. So yeah, I guess try it in your own way and, and see what happens. And the last question uh, that we'll look at in this episode is this one. Stoicism seems like it's all about the buffered self, the inner citadel. Isn't that the opposite of mysticism? Uh, which is such a great question. Uh, this is actually, uh, so obviously I've uh, a reference to a podcast on Stoicism that I did. So if you want to get a bigger sense of what I'm, I uh, understand by the Stoic frame, that's a pretty good podcast to go to. It's also rather long. It ended up being longer than I planned for it to be. Um, but anyway, here is what I would say. First off, when I was a teenager, I found Stoicism profoundly helpful. In fact, I'd say I found it to be something of a relief. As an Enneotype 5, you could say that my forewing was seriously acting up and not in a healthy fourish way. Uh, so Stoicism got me to hone my ability to perceive more clearly what was going on in my relationship with the world. So for me, it, it, I think I, my relationship with Stoicism is very, very tied up in the fact that it had an effect on the way that I looked at the world. And it was very, in my view, experientially very healthy. It is, of course, absolutely true that Stoicism might promote something like a bounded self, but I don't think this is the main aim of that philosophical perspective. I think the main aim is really to recognize, and I quote, capital R, reason. That is the, the real order of things, both in us and in the world. And this means finding a way to deal with our emotions effectively. This doesn't mean resorting to repression. I've already talked about Freud, but I think this is a helpful point to, to refer to. It's not like we have to create this philosophical worldview that says when you have a negative emotion or what you perceive to be a negative emotion, shove it out of the way. Rather, what it seems to me to be about is, is really taking note of what is going on and then asking the question about where our emotions might be taking us and what they might be telling us. I know this is not the entire Stoic vision, of course, but it is for me something that gets to the center of the question. So when there's an inner storm, the idea is that we have to figure out what the storm is telling us. And Stoicism, I'd say, creates the mental conditions through which we can allow ourselves to find the truth even in the midst of inner and outer turmoil. The core issue in Stoicism is always what can you control and what can't you control? And the implication is this. Don't try to fuss or attend to what is beyond your purview. As Jesus says, 
each day has enough troubles of its own, which is to say, focus on what you need to, focus on what is right in front of you, because you can only change yourself. That is really the only way to change the world, is to be the kind of person who can change the world. And I really mean that in a very small scale sense, because I don't believe uh, Christianity is political in the sense of being a collectivist ideology, which I suppose raises all sorts of questions on its own. But anyway, um, so as I see it, Stoicism actually helps to create the conditions according to which we might actually dive into the pit of hell, so to speak, and figure out how to let that, or if to let that, shape us, and if to let that transform us. So I have found it very helpful in my own life for allowing me the sort of stillness that has been particularly good for meditative prayer, and, and in fact I think it allows for mysticism, not because it is itself a mystical discipline, but because it helps to create the space within which we can actually uh, deepen our connection with what is truly real. It's a kind of decluttering practice. So, there you go. Those are uh, the three answers to three questions. And in the next episode, I will continue to answer some questions. This has actually been quite fun. I think I should do this more often. Thanks very much for listening in, everyone. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, take care of yourselves. Cheers. <laughs>